For the past three years, the Science of Reading Star Awards have honored educators who are beacons of light, guiding their classrooms, schools, districts, and most importantly, students through transformations with literacy. Now join us as we honor this year's winners at a special celebration event, which will feature celebrity keynoters and past podcast guests, Mitchell Brookins. Two years ago, one of my students as a school administrator came to me on the playground and he said, Mr. Brookins, I want to be like the other kids. And I said, what do you mean? He said, Mr. Brookins, I want to learn how to read. And Malcolm Mitchell. When I scored a touchdown, they either probably put my name in the newspaper, people probably tell me good job all around town. But when I finished one book, no one ever said anything. So which one am I more likely to repeat? Find out more information and register for the 2024 Science of Reading Star Awards ceremony at amplify.com slash Star Awards celebrations. That's amplify.com slash Star Awards celebration, all one word. Welcome to Science of Reading, the podcast. I'm your host, Susan Lambert. We're doing something a little different today to kick off season four. In the two years since we've launched this podcast, the Science of Reading movement has grown to the point where it's really changing lives every day. We're so grateful that so many of you have brought your voices to the movement. My colleague Laura Cusack and I thought this would be a great time to talk through this incredible journey. I started listening to podcasts for my own benefit because my listening comprehension is not that great. Um, and so I started listening to podcasts myself just, just to help me be a better listener. Um, and so while I was then reading research, thinking about how we're trying to help teachers really translate research to practice to understand like, like, the voice, like the voice of researchers and, and how does that get to a classroom teacher who's super, super busy all the time? Um, it dawned on me that a podcast was a great mechanism whereby a teacher could listen or any, 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 any educator at any level who's super busy could listen whenever they needed to, they could rewind whenever they needed to. And we really could use it as a vehicle or a mechanism to, to get information out and information that really mattered. So that's sort of where it came from. And then the thinking was, well, it can't be that hard to throw something up and out because people do it all the time. And let's just try this and see if it works. I mean, maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't. Maybe people will say yes to us. Maybe they won't. But you don't know if you don't try. So it was really a learning opportunity. And that's where it came from. And it was really interesting that we started reaching out. We would reach out to people expecting them to maybe say no. And so far, nobody we've reached out to has said no. Some have scheduling conflicts, which we totally get that, right? But everybody has said yes and has just been super lovely about the whole process. And so that's that's a little bit of the background. And that's really amazing. And that was summer into fall 2019 when the podcast started. And it seems like almost immediately, not only from the guests, but from the audience, there was a real hunger for sharing this kind of information. Isn't that right? Yeah, there really was. And I think what made this podcast different was we weren't talking specifically about classroom practices. 
And we weren't talking like at a, a really, really technical level about research. We were sort of somewhere in between um, about some of these things that we know already about what it takes to become a reader. And it was right at the right moment when reading science, evidence-based practices broke open, right? The Emily Hanford podcasts were really the thing that broke this thing open. And teachers are like, wait a minute, or building principals are like, wait a minute, what do you mean these things that we're doing are not evidence-based and they're not actually good for our kids? And I don't really know what it takes to become a reader. I need to figure out more about this. So I think it came at a right moment too, at the right level of information. The right moment, the right level. And it seems like the interest has only continued to grow since then. Yeah, worldwide, actually, which is worldwide. really amazing for us is that the uh, the framework of the simple view of reading of how kids learn how to read actually can be applied to any alphabetic language. So it doesn't matter if you're learning in Spanish or if you're learning in English or if you're in Australia or New Zealand learning in English. It's, you know, it's really just really a hot topic. So um, that's been pretty cool to see it spread worldwide. And so all this starts spreading and there's this hunger for information and then the disruption of a year or more than a year of interrupted instruction. And it seems like with the pandemic, science of reading may be even more relevant than when the podcast started. Well, I think what the pandemic has done is at least what we see in our data is it has highlighted the the skill gaps that we've always seen, like the patterns of skill gaps in our youngest of learners. And it's just been at a greater magnitude. And so when you translate that to what that means for districts or schools or classrooms, it's like, oh my goodness, we all of a sudden have a whole lot of kids that are missing this one kind of thing. And it's not the kid's fault that they're missing it. And now we have to do something differently. So, right, like it's just a it's just a way for us to come back to the foundations of the evidence base of reading instruction. Do we really know what that is? And how can we apply it now, especially since um, since we're seeing, you know, more gaps in that learning? And you're right, I think that encourages people to look at the data that was maybe always there, but is so magnified in the past yeah. year and more. And it really does tell a story of equity. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how one ensures equity within the science of reading. It's a really good issue. Um, I think, you know, for an individual teacher, when I said it's not their fault, we have to remember that individual teachers are working within systems and, and, and equity is really a, a function of a system. And so in order to make sure that teachers, all teachers are equipped to be able to teach reading, we need to have the right kind of teacher education system, which I think we probably don't have, right? People are saying that over and over. Um, so I think there's one element to that, but, um, the science of reading will help give us framework practices that if we're delivering to students from the minute they come to us in schooling, whether that be pre-K or K, if we can really focus on those foundational framework sort of elements and ensure all kids get access to that kind of instruction, 
um, that's where the equity equity lays. Now, that's going to look different in different contexts, depending on the students that you have sitting in front of you. But we still can rely on those foundational principles, no matter where kids are in their learning trajectory. Um, and and I think that foundation, the foundational principles and that framework helps elevate our expectations for what kids can do. And so that combination of ensuring all kids get access to the same kind of instruction, but at the elevated expectation level, because we sort of know what kids need to have at certain points uh, in their schooling. And it sounds like what you're seeing in the data is really backing this up. Yeah, what we see in the data is really backing this up. And we already have I say this all the time, right? Like we're hyper fixated on a nation at our NAEP scores, at least in the education community. Everybody talks about the flat NAEP scores over and over and over again. And our first moment in actually assessing a NAEP is fourth grade. Well, by the time kids get to fourth grade, right? Like we've lost a lot of instruction with them if if they didn't have the appropriate instruction, So then we back up. We hear a lot of people talking about third grade, right? Like there's been lots of reports on the correlation between proficiency at third grade and um, readiness for high school content, success after high school, whether it's in career or college. And so third grade, we actually have a lot of of third grade reading laws across the nation. Um, That's even kind of too late, right? Um, because what we know is from the from the evidence is that if a kid is on track at the end of first grade, then they're set. If they're not on track at the end of first grade, like 90% of those kids are not going to get on track. So we really need to back up to the early grades and hold our expectations high and deliver that really strong instruction there. Um, and we know if we do that, it actually works. That's incredible. And that speaks to some of the data coming out about the effect of the pandemic, right? Because many of the kindergartners and first graders might have had that entire portion of their learning interrupted. They might not have been in school long before the pandemic started. So how would the science of reading intervene to help those kids? Well, I mean, we can go backwards in the instruction to catch kids up, even if they're further along in their schooling, in the, you know their age or their, their grades. So things that we know that they need to have, like, like foundations in phonemic awareness, like being able to hear sounds and words, understanding the alphabetic principle that the you know, graphemes and the phonemes need to match up. Moving beyond that to um, advanced code, like all of the, vowel teams you have to know and the syllable patterns that help you sort of pull words apart. We can go backwards using evidence-based practices and figure out where kids are, instruct them in those things while at the same time keeping them in grade level content where they're developing that language comprehension or, you know, the the concepts and the vocabulary that they're working with in, in the higher grades. We can couple those two things together it's a lot harder at the at the upper grades, um, but it's not like it can't be done. We just have to sort of rely on on our, you know, science of reading research to help us understand those things that kids need. So say a little more about that because 
it sounds like you're saying that a teacher should not focus on just intervention and just teaching those skills that may have been missed during interrupted instruction, even though they're a huge priority. Yeah. So let me say that more generally first, and then I'll come back to that specific question. But pre-pandemic, if you had a kid in third, fourth, or fifth grade, right, you may or may not recognize that they had foundational skills gaps and you may hyper focus because they're they're going to present themselves as as probably having reading comprehension issues right and so not understanding pre-pandemic people didn't understand a lot of people that this comprehension issue at those grade levels and even into middle school the majority of the time they have to do with with word recognition issues. So now we have an, an issue of, okay, we have kids pre-pandemic that couldn't engage with text at the level of word recognition or reading and writing, but they probably could engage with those texts if we're talking about them being learning content. Like, like imagine a kid that can't comprehend, but they love science, right? Because a lot of times those concepts and vocabulary are presented either orally or they're doing some hands-on activities or experiments with that. And they're absorbing and taking in these concepts. Well, the same idea applies to what we can help them do in terms of, of ELA and, and reading comprehension is if we could get them outside of the text and get those concepts to them another way their language would continue to grow, but that's not helping them like recognize words. So that's pre-pandemic. Guess what post-pandemic is? It's the same thing except magnified. And so what we need to be able to do is we need to be able to walk back and look at that data. We need to go talk to those K1 and 2 teachers who are saying, oh my gosh, I've got all these kids in my classroom that all of a sudden they're further behind than I ever remember them being. And we need to take those lessons of those foundational skills and sort of help the entire, you know, pre-K through five uh, group of teachers work together to figure out how they can intervene uh, and make that happen. And at the same time, we need to continue to deliver that grade level instruction because like I said, if we're not bringing that grade level instruction to these kids, their language comprehension is going to stagnate and we don't want that to happen either. That didn't probably even answer your question. No, I think it was great. So I think what I'm hearing is that science of reading principles, even the very first principles like phonemic awareness and mapping graphemes to phonemes, those are more important for upper elementary and even middle school teachers to understand than ever. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. So how does an upper elementary or middle school teacher start to become familiar with these concepts if it maybe wasn't part of their teacher instruction and it's important now in a way that it hasn't been before? Well, I mean, they could listen to the podcast <laughs> and there's some episodes in the podcast that talk about that. You know, if I was a, a principal or a, a district leader, um, finding those early elementary, either teachers or coaches that actually have this information, I mean, that would be the number one go-to. 
um, anybody in your school or in your district that knows it because your school school and your district is within a unique context, right? So it'll mean a lot more if you can, and you'll learn a lot faster if you can learn those concepts within the context of where you're at. Um, but you can also, and I was a little being sarcastic, but not really, that's why Science of Reading the Podcast was actually created, was to start doing these learnings about what it really takes to become a skilled reader. Because the funny thing is, is that a lot of us are expert readers. But just because you're an expert reader doesn't mean you're an expert at breaking down and teaching reading. Because there's some systems and processes that her brain has automatized and we just do them sort of like driving a car, right? You don't even think about it anymore and it's very hard to pull it apart. Um, so there's, I mean, there's resources available to help help people. There's books that you can read and there's trainings that you can take, but, but an early entry into that is the podcast series actually. So the podcast, and then it sounds like really an amazing opportunity for K-1-2 teachers who have been immersed in the science of reading to help their colleagues. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what better way to do it? Because not only learning from your colleagues is great, but when you're learning from your colleagues within the same context, you can start to solve problems that are you know, unique to you and can actually impact your community much quicker uh, than trying to do it in sort of an external way. And that's a nice segue into another part of the conversation. We're hearing so much right now for obvious reasons about social emotional learning. How does social emotional learning work with the science of rating? <laughs> I love that question. I love that question. I'm going to start from the context of my own son. So I, I have a, I have four children. Um, my second son uh, was actually, we've, we recognized him as dyslexic when he was uh, well into fourth grade. And by the time he got into fourth grade, he pretty much figured that he wasn't that smart, that he couldn't read books, he didn't know how to write, and the only thing he felt successful at was organizing things. So he was an expert problem solver. I remember when he was a little kid, he would pull all the Tupperware out of the cupboard and reorganize the Tupperware cupboard for me, or he could create amazing maps of the neighborhood, right? Like, cause he could just visualize that. So he had pretty much given up on anything that had to do with reading and writing. And it took us forever to figure out what his issue was. And he, social and emotional, right? It got so bad that for every day, for I don't know how many months, he would sit on the front step and cry that he had a stomach ache and couldn't go to school. And I had to physically put him in my car and drive him to school, drop him off, knowing that he was going to be in a context where he was afraid somebody was going to call on him to read. He didn't feel like he could fit in with a group. Like, what does that do then to, to both, you know, the agency of a student at that age, but also, right, just his emotional ability to interact in the context with people. So I think one of the best gifts that we can give kids is the ability to read because it impacts so many more things that they do. And if they can't read it, it's a barrier between them and engagement in both the community of learners and who they are as a person in that community of learning. And so I know there's been, 
a lot of work done on, well, what do you do with a kid that's demotivated or that doesn't like to read or doesn't feel good about themselves to read? Well, you could maybe fix that issue of not learning how to read, right? Like, and give them that agency to work with text again, because it's all around them. So there's this relationship between uh, building confident, capable readers, um, and, and really helping students feel empowered and, uh, you know, supported in their community. So I think it's, it's both things that we have to understand, especially now, we have to understand that when kids come to us, and frankly, teachers in this moment, there is going to be at Back to School 21, there's going to be just a lot of unconfidence, a lot of unknown, a lot of, you know, gray areas where people, frankly, are going to be scared, right? Like, it's a little bit of fear, like, what am I going to do with my class? Or students are coming in, how am I going to interact in my classroom again? And we really have to just be compassionate about these communities and just say, all right, we're going to start where we can start and we're going to do everything that we can to actually infuse a really academic culture with some compassion um, to, to bring both teachers and kids along to help them. You know, we can solve this thing, right? Like it's all going to be okay. We just have to start where we can start and do all the work that we can do um, and, and just be encouraging of the work that needs to be done. And, aware that it might be a little bit harder right now. But as adults, we need to create structures and systems for kids to feel supported um, so that they can both, you know, close those gaps or accelerate that learning that they need to do for reading so that they can engage with the joy of reading. And we can read books to them, like help them understand that joy of reading and connect that way too. And help them understand, it sounds like, that it's not some magical process by which the people around them became excellent readers. It's understood and it's science and there's a journey there that they can follow. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. And all the while remembering that as adults in this context and situation, it's our duty and our responsibility to look at our own practices and develop systems of support for the students because it's not their fault and it's not their deficit. Um, it's an opportunity for us to look at what we're doing generally uh, in the education program and specifically in the literacy program to help support and accelerate that. And if I'm hearing you correctly, it's not a deficit at all. It's not fixed. It's very much changeable by going back and filling those gaps and missed instruction. Is that right? Yeah, it's changeable. And it's changeable not just for the right now. It's our opportunity to, to examine our practices and say, I'm going to change it now for these kids because they need and deserve it and continue that change so that we don't get in the situation again um, in terms of the gaps. Amazing. I'm going to go back to the podcast itself, if you don't mind. Are there any favorite moments you would pull out that were just such great connections between guest and insight and audience or anything you pull out that's just like that was a great moment? Um, well, there's a couple of them. Uh, 
from the first season, I remember um, doing doing the episode with Tim Shanahan, and I I think the the interesting thing about that was talking about research and evidence. I mean, Tim Shanahan's been around a really long time, and he has a lot. Sorry, Tim, <laughs> and he has a lot of expertise and he is grounded in the research base. Like nobody's more grounded than Shanahan is. Um, and being able to hear him talk as if he was a, a real person down to earth in the trenches, understanding what teachers go through and being able to translate that research into practice. Um, I thought that was a, a really amazing episode as well as the, uh, the second episode we did with him, which was about the 20th anniversary of the National Reading Panel. And talking with him about science and what science means. That science is we continue to gather evidence that either supports or doesn't support the previous evidence and how in this space, that there is evidence that's growing and growing and growing and it's not outdated science. We actually have this preponderance of evidence that's pointing to things that we know work for kids. And some of the big five that came through in the national reading panel, we continue to gain more evidence to show that these things are right. Now, are we learning new things about that? Yes, we are. Um, but there is nothing that's indicated that the National Reading Panel was on the wrong track or that we need to shift our practices. It's only pointing us to how we need to uh, continue to try to, to, to try to translate that into classroom practice. There's no such thing as old science, by the way. So that's amazing because it sounds like in a time of uncertainty as people are shifting and doing new things, there's a real certainty in the evidence here that these are the practices that will work. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and even his his work the, leading the National Reading Panel, a lot of that came out of the world of cognitive science. And the interesting thing now is that as we're applying that to neuroscience, which was the Bruce McCandless episode, oh my gosh, those episodes are amazing. Um, as we're applying that to neuroscience, the neuroscience is continuing to confirm the things that came out of cognitive science. So for example, um, the importance of phonemic awareness, absolutely clear in the National Reading Panel report, we can actually see the brain. Neuroscientists can actually watch the brain as kids are developing as readers. And we know that in order to connect the sort of word recognitions with the speech part of our brain, we have to have strong phonemic awareness abilities. So the fact that neuroscience is confirming that and we can see that, actually literally see it inside somebody's brain is amazing. That's wonderful. And it says to me that there's this increasing preponderance of evidence, as you've said, that these are the practices that will make a difference. And yet at the margins, it sounds like the science is continuing to evolve and even go further. Yeah, it is. And and what I want to say about that, too, is talking about this 
the, the word science. I mean, I don't think any teacher in the classroom will will instruct something and say, oh, no, that's not research based. Right. We use research based all the time. And but do we really understand what that means? And what do we really understand what science means? I heard somebody say, I think this was in the sort of in the battle, um, social media battle. Oh, well, your science isn't my science. And if you're a scientist, and if I would say that to them, like science is trying to get closer and closer and closer to the truth, right? So in the world of learning, understanding how the brain learns how to read, there's no such thing as two different kinds of science. There is only the science, right? And so um, helping teachers gently understand that the practices you're actually using in your classroom may further a student's and develop a student as a skilled reader, or you may be using practices that are actually developing poor reading habits in your classroom. No teacher's gonna do that on purpose, right? But it's also not an easy thing for a teacher to hear the practices you are using are actually promoting and developing poor readers. And so how do we gently get this message across that there is an evidence base, there is a singular evidence base of how we learn how to read. There's things, nuances, and more things we're understanding about that, but all of those new discoveries we have still points to the fact that kids need two things. They need language comprehension and they need decoding. I mean, if you're not encouraging those two things in your classroom through the practices that you're doing, then you may not be using an evidence base. And that's particularly important now. And then if I'm understanding you correctly, in the same way that scientists are approximating the truth more and more closely, teachers can shift their instruction to take advantage of the science of reading and approximate optimal instruction more and more closely. Would that be right? That is absolutely right. And it doesn't mean you have to drop everything that you did and make a 180 degree turn because we know that's not sustainable to do that. You need to grow your knowledge base and then you need to infuse a practice and then maybe two, and then maybe three. Um, but it's growing as a professional. And that's what we need teachers to do. And teachers want to do that. They want to grow as professionals. And so I would say to that teacher that's just not sure, am I using evidence-based practices or not? Try one little change and see what that one little change will accomplish in your students in a very short time. And once you see that, success really breeds success. So then try the next thing and try the next thing and the next thing. And what's that one first thing you should try? I can't tell you what that is because it depends on your grade level, right? And it, and it depends on where sort of your entry point is into this. Um, but, but, it's, it, but it's all about growing and learning and being able to say for the sake of the students that are in front of me, I am going to change something about what I'm doing to benefit their outcome, both this year and in their future for their life trajectory, actually. 
And so much important work going on right now in the field. How do you keep current yourself with everything that's being done and all the new evidence that's coming together? Oh, it takes a village. It takes a village. I mean, even the, the fun thing about the podcast is even the researchers that I talk to, um, they don't always know what's going on uh, in terms of new evidence. Because of course, they're sort of siloed down into the one particular topic they're researching. But they will make mention of needing a community to help them grow and learn and constantly evolve in terms of, in terms of what they're understanding. But for myself, I mean, a, a couple of things. Um, as, as I smooth the bags under my eyes, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but, you know, even I am seasoned in my career, and even as a seasoned professional, I saw the need to go back and further my knowledge in a more explicit way. So I'm the host of Science, the Reading, Science of Reading, the podcast. I have a responsibility to ensure that I'm disseminating information um, that's both science-based and helpful to teachers. And so I recognized that I was learning alongside uh, those of the, the folks that were listening and I needed to further to develop that. And so I decided to go back and get a do some doctoral studies in reading science. So I am getting ready to launch that program as a doctoral student um, and do some research there. So that's the research side. But then also there's the sort of classroom practice piece. Like I hear teachers that say, yeah, that's really great when I hear it on your podcast or that's really great to read in a book, but have you been in a classroom? Have you been, have you tried to teach students that are really struggling to read? And so I decided um, another great thing to do would be to tutor, tutor a kid. There's lots of kids out there that need extra, extra hands. Uh, and so I went to a school that's not far from me and there was a fourth grade student that really needed some, some extra tutoring. And so I tutor a fourth grade student twice a week um, and in, and really, really seeing not just how difficult it is for classroom teachers to be able to meet the needs of all students and, you know, I'm doing this in air quotes, but differentiate instruction. It sounds so great, right? In theory, in practice, it's so difficult. But then also at the student level, again, he's a fourth grade student and you know, well below grade level in, ter in terms of reading uh, and, and language comprehension. Um, and, and his, his uh, confidence level, right? You can see it. You, I could see it early on in the school year, him interacting with his peers was very different than the way he's interacting now because we've come a long way in this tutoring. And so to know that I've been able to infuse some confidence and capability in his reading abilities helps him interact with his peers differently. It's it's really rewarding for one thing, but it's also a real learning experience for me to understand every day, what does it take, right? Like it's not easy work to be consistent about delivering explicit instruction to help, you know, this kid close his gap, but it can be done. It's just hard work. And it sounds like a great reinforcement of the link between social emotional learning and the science of reading. 100%. Really both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 
So you talked a few minutes ago about some of the neuroscience going on and watching the neurons light up as the phoneme recognition is kicking in. Are there other things like that? Is there other work going on that really excites you when you hear about it? Oh my goodness, that's a big question. <laughs> I don't know that, I mean, I think, I think some of the work that needs to be highlighted, maybe let, let me take that sort of tact, the, some of the work that needs to be highlighted is um, the work of early, uh, the early learning how to read, right? So we talk about kids need phonological and phonemic awareness. They come to us hearing and speaking and doing a lot of things in their home environment when they transition to school, we're going to ask them to work in a much more academic environment, um, even already in kindergarten, right? What they learn, what they read in books is much more academic than what you hear and talk about outside of school. Um, and so I think one thing we've done is um, over, uh, under, well, how do I say this? Not understand or not apply the fact that kids' home environments what they're hearing is very different between homes. Maybe one's been to a library and others haven't been to a library. Maybe some have been on vacation. Some never have been outside of their, not just city, but outside of their neighborhood. So they're coming to us with all kinds of different experiences, both language comprehension experiences or you know their, their activity experiences different, but also the conversational differences. Because reading starts from speech in more than one way, right? So the language comprehension side, but also the word recognition side, when we get that diversity of kids in a kindergarten classroom, we have to honor all of their experiences. And we need to make sure that we're honoring all of those experiences. And so sometimes what I think can happen is we take this science of reading and the word recognition and the language comprehension, and we apply it, but we forget to apply it in the context of the variety of students that are sitting in front of us and being able to honor those experiences and to work from where the student is, not from where we think they should be coming from. So we have to honor those experiences of students. And I think we need to highlight more of that work. Um, and there's more of that work that needs to be done. Things like doing research about phonological and phonemic awareness with students that don't generally speak academic English. Um, and, and so I think some of that work we need to highlight more. And, and I think we're gonna work to highlight that more. That's amazing. Thank you. I want to ask a couple of questions drawing on everything that you've learned and done with the podcast these past few years. I think we touched on some of this already, but I'm going to ask anyhow. Best advice to a teacher who might just be hearing about the science of reading now or more likely who's been so busy with everything going on the past year and a half that they're just turning their attention seriously to the science of reading now? Where do they start? I think the first thing you should do is Google the simple view of reading. And, and I'm, not, I'm not even being silly about that. 
um, you can get access to so many great resources that people have put together to understand what it takes to be a proficient or skilled reader. And to dig into those two foundational elements, you will find that it's called the simple view of reading, but it's, it's pretty complex what our brain does in order to learn how to read. But if you can just take that pressure off of yourself of all that complexity and just start with those two elements, say, oh, language, language comprehension and word recognition, I got to figure out what these two things are. And when you generally figure out what those two things are, then you can take a next step deeper and a next step deeper and a next step deeper. But I think that's a perfect place to start. That's great. And then a similar question for the teacher who maybe has that understanding and wants to start infusing more science of reading practice into their classroom this fall. Where do they Um, start? Yeah, I'm going to, well, I'm going to recommend a podcast episode and a book for that. So um, I think, and and maybe I'll say it this way, for the older, for, for an older grade teacher, let's start with the older grade teacher. If you're teaching grade three and up, you should start with Nancy Hennessy's book. It's called The Reading Comprehension Blueprint and listen to that podcast episode. Because what, what it will do is it'll give you an overview of, of what it takes to be a proficient reader, but it will give you all kind of information backed by the research of what you can learn and what you can do to help facilitate a lot of comprehension and understand if something is lacking in the word recognition side. For a K-1 and 2 teacher, while that would be a great resource as well. Um, My recommendation for a K-1-2 teacher would be a couple things. If I was going to recommend a podcast episode and a book, it would be Louisa Motz's episode along with Speech to Print. And that is not for a beginner so much, but for somebody that really wants to dig in and understand linguistically what we're talking about when we're talking about the ideas of word recognition. Um, And so I think those would be my two recommendations. Amazing. And then last question on this topic. If you're a leader wanting to bring science of reading insights into your district, where do you start? How do you manage this level of change? Oh, change management is always such a difficult thing. I will tell you that the first thing you need to do as, as a leader is you need to understand what this is, but you don't need to understand word recognition at the level of Louisa Motes, right? What you need to do is you need to understand, okay, what is reading proficiency? What does it take? And what does that look like across the grades? So the first thing I would recommend to them is actually the Amplify Primers. So number one and number two, along with Lawrence Holt's podcast episode that we did in season one, because that gives you a broad like beginning spot overview to understand what needs to happen And I think I would also recommend, um, we did a couple of episodes with folks that are doing some implementation and change management. Um, uh, One of them is the one that we did with uh, Plain Talk, right? So we talked with Natalie Wexler, Ernie Ortiz, and Carolyn Strom, who gave some great, like, this is what it is. This is what it looks like in practice. Um, and here's some some of the things you can do, like Ernie Ortiz talked us through some of the change that he did in his school. 
Um, the other good read would be Natalie Wexler's book um, because that really helps you understand the need for teaching of content in the classroom, which is often missed and misunderstood. Amazing. Thank you. What a trajectory across the last couple of years. Any final thoughts that you want to share as we launch into a new season? I cannot wait to learn more from our guests because we're, we're walking now into a world that is, we've done the basics of the science of reading. We've talked about the cognitive science. We've talked about the neuroscience. Now we're going to branch out to talk about what does that mean for all learners? How can we be in a inclusive in our approaches to what we're doing, inclusive to think about both impact from the pandemic, but also learners that have been historically marginalized. How do we approach instruction to ensure they're getting what they need and that our practices are, are really diverse in, in terms of our approach? So I'm, I'm excited to take a new step into, into that. Amazing. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening and for being with us on this journey. We've got so much coming up for you this season, starting with great conversations around acceleration and recovery, how to make the science of reading truly inclusive and centering multiple perspectives. And you won't want to miss the first ever Science of Reading Awards. Be sure to stay connected by subscribing on your favorite podcast app and join our Facebook discussion group, Science of Reading the Community. Until next time.